Welcome to the If These Walls Could Talk podcast. I am your host, Rachel Usher. I'm an accomplished interior designer and solopreneur, having built my own design practice from nothing into an award-winning and published studio. During my own design journey, I have found the business side of interiors to be secretive and largely conducted from behind the curtain, leaving business owners like myself grappling with the unique complexities of running a design business and often having to learn many things through trial and error. Well, here's the thing. It doesn't have to be that way. This show is designed for design professionals and together with our guests, we demystify the business of interiors. This is the place where we hear from the personal experiences of some of the most talented people that work within the design industry. From entrepreneurs to business experts, together we unravel some of those truth tales about what it really means to not only survive, but to thrive in the creative world of business. Thank you for joining me today for what is my very first podcast. Today, I will be joined by Vanessa Brady, OBE. Vanessa is one of the most prominent ambassadors for the interior design industry in the UK. She's the founder and CEO of the SBID and was awarded an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List in 2013 for services to the interior design industry. Over many decades, Vanessa has cultivated a highly successful career. Vanessa is a big thinker, and as you will discover from our conversation today, she is not afraid to challenge conventional thinking or to go her own way. Hi, Vanessa. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Rachel. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to have you as my debut guest. I am also quite terrified. (laughs) (laughs) I think we'll both plod along together. Okay, so this is our first podcast recording and you are Vanessa Brady. Please, can you settle in and introduce yourself? Well, thank you so much. First of all, I am thrilled to be invited as your first guest and I'm not sure if I'm going to step up to set the standard for your future podcast. Um, Like you, I'm an interior designer and uh, it was Possibly not my first, well, it definitely was not my first choice. I wanted to be in fashion, but that didn't appeal to me when I looked into it. And I've been an interior designer for many, many decades and, or many years, several decades. And I've had my own fit out company attached to that. And then later on, in about 14, 15 years ago, I set up the SBID professional body for interior designers. Wow. So you were in fashion design. Talk talk me through that. How did you make that transition and why? Well, I started off at school thinking that that was something that I would like to do. But I very quickly learned that I couldn't work with the culture of the people that the way that that industry was in those days and so after the first term or within the first term I I decided to step out of that and my tutor advised me to define what I liked and why I chose it and I said oh I like fabric and I like shape and I like color and she said well what about textile design And interior design was not a subject uh, at that time. So I went into textile and because 
I also liked construction. I was quite curious about um, why things were built and done the way they were. My father was an engineer. So I got it. I connected the two in a way that I would work with contractors and ask them why they put a unit on the wall in a certain place. And they would say, well, there's a baton behind that dry lining, love. <laughs> so I, I used to think, well, that's convenient for you, but it's not convenient for the user. So that's how I sort of morphed, if you like, into interior design, where it didn't exist as a, as a job or a profession in those days. And that, that's something that, uh, you know, sort of 20 years on, it's now the most popular profession. And magazines that are printed and sold in, in all the shops, it's the most sold publications of, of a, a, I don't want to say a hobby, but interest, let's say an interest. Yeah. So you went into it having come out of fashion. And what was your first experience in the working world as an interior designer? Did you immediately work for yourself or did you work for another practice? No. Um, I was, I started off working with a contractor and helping them sort of choosing colours and um, doing layout. And it was done in graph paper cutouts in those days um, and sort of like a little bit blue Peter. But then I was approached by a man who lived locally who wanted to open up a company in London, and I come from Bournemouth. And uh, he said, I'm moving to London to open up a practice for property investment, and I need someone to do the design and the fit-out, and you, if you'd like to be involved, I'm looking for someone to work with. And so... After a couple of meetings, I negotiated 30% of the company wow. flat. <laughs> and, uh, and the investor said, well, give it to her. Because I said, look, you've currently got 100% of nothing, but I will work morning, noon and night. I will work without income. Um, you don't have to pay me a fee. You'll pay me from the profit, but I want 30% of whatever we make and I'll make it work. Wow. And the investor sort of shrugged his shoulders and said, give it to her. So um, I asked for a written contract and I signed it. And that was that. And off we went and I got this flat in Chelsea and I sort of died and went to heaven if I'm, if I'm truthful. So that was really good. I had security I had a nice home and I potentially had a good income. So six months later, we were doing very, very well. We were, had lots of people that were in buying flats and houses in Mayfair and St. John's Wood and all over. And I didn't know London very well, but I ended up where there was suddenly four of us in the office and slowly it became a very valuable. Then I started on my own. The rest is history, really. I saw sort of 30, 40 years on. I've, um... That's incredible confidence for somebody at that time, quite young and straight out of university, to really negotiate, you know, a deal like that. I think it was 
part naivety, if I'm honest. Um, I've always been about fairness. And if something doesn't feel like it's just, I'll fight for it. To ask me to come and work and build something without being part a partner of it, without being paid over and above uh, a a, a salary for the for a basic job if I'm expected to put in more than basic it didn't seem fair so in fact what happened um two years later when we looked I looked at the contract and I noticed that the solicitor had given me a third of the gross income instead of a third of the net so I took the investor the contract and I said, I think you need this back. And I tore it in half. And he was really grateful to me because by then we were doing well. Yeah. And he was always very good to me. And I didn't know who he was. I just thought he was um, an investor with, who had some money. Anyway, we were doing a sort of conference at the Intercontinental in Park Lane. And we'd invited all these potential investors. And I suppose there was about 15 or 20 of us sitting around this big table having drinks when it was over. And this man, he had this in the ring on his finger and he suddenly looked, noticed that he'd lost it. And so everyone was looking for it, but no one could find it. And that was it. About few minutes later, moments later, I went off to the loo and in the window on the sunshine, I saw this thing and I picked it up and I walked over and said, is this your diamond? And he said, wow. So everyone had said to me, why did you give that to him? And I said, <laughs> didn't cross my mind not to, but I gave him the, and apparently because it was a pink diamond and of the size of it, it was so valuable. And a, a year or so after that, somebody said to me, you do know who he is, don't you? And I said, no. And they said, well, he's the owner of the Bank of Abu Dhabi. Wow. So my partner, <laughs> who I'd negotiated this deal with, was the owner of a big bank. And I didn't know. And he hadn't said. And I was just a little girl from Bournemouth. Amazing. So, so uh, yeah, I, I landed in London in a very safe environment with regular business, which is always the difficulty, I think. When the business comes in on a regular basis, much of your difficulties are resolved because I think much of the difficulty for an average interior designer is sourcing the next job while you're in the middle of the current one, you know, and that is difficult. But for us at that time, we had a regular feed of work. It was all high quality. In those days, there, there wasn't contracts laid out the way there were the building regs and all of that. There, there weren't even clamps and things in the parking. Everyone could park where they liked. Everything was easy. There was no congestion so, charge. No, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was, in many ways, it was sort of setting things out. It was really a new place I think, for interior design to set up because at that time, the only people that were interior designers were 
very wealthy daughters of gentry, if you yes. like, where they didn't really need to earn a living. They just needed to do something until they got married. And I think today, most people who are doing interior design, certainly we would encourage and ensure that people that are members of SBID, they're doing it because it's a job that generates a living. It's not a pastime. We don't want it to, we don't want hobbyists. So it's really important. And because I'm self-made in everything that I've achieved, it's, I'm very aware of all the issues along the way. And I'm very keen to help people that possibly by accent or postcode or finances might not have had the same opportunities as people with more affluent backgrounds. I think that's a very, very interesting point. And to take your point, it will not be lost on you that I'm from the North and I have a Northern accent. And I have worked all over the UK and have done some amazing projects in London and other places. However, I was always surprised when people react to my accent and I can tell that it's a negative connotation. Isn't um, that horrible? And it happened only this week at Decorex. I was speaking to a wonderful joinery company and I was really impressed with their work and I'm not going to say who it was. And yeah. I wasn't familiar with them. And they said, oh, really? And I said, no, no, I've not come across you before. And I was really interested in their work. And they said, well, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm based in Yorkshire. Oh, and... But you could be you know, in another country. Exactly. He's, he's judged you by the wrong standard, not can't stand and that. And it exists subtly within yes. the culture yeah. of interior design. But it's so snooty in interior design. And we pride ourselves. One of the things we say as a studio is that we're, we're straight talking, we're very honest, we're very yes. approachable. Um, and we try to emphasise those qualities because yes. actually... The client rang up last week and she said to me, I've been wanting to ring you for months, but I was really nervous to do so because oh. interior design is intimidating to people. And I think that's such a shame. And it's also one of the things I try to change. I think the most important part is that people should realise that when we go and act for them or see them, we're there to sell advice ultimately. Yeah. Exactly. And that's brilliant to see that change coming through. And more importantly, to be emphasised by somebody in the industry that's a leader like yourself. You know, you've made your own way, established your own firm, and now you've established the SBID. So talk us through how you moved into your own practice and what were some of the successes and challenges that you faced running your own practice? Failures. Um, Well, the thing is, I found it quite difficult to work in such a snooty culture. And it really was. And I remember, talking about Decorex, I was invited to a business breakfast or a designer's breakfast, I think it was, in those days. And I'd been practicing for a long time and on my own. Um, I was established. My clients were... King of Saudi Arabia, Sultan of Brunei. So I didn't need to have endorsement from 
other designers. Um, I didn't shout about that, obviously, um, but I got invited to a breakfast finally, and I thought, oh, at last. <laughs> and I sat on this sort of bench table, and they had croissants and coffee. Well, I can tell you, honestly, Rachel, I tried to connect and chat with four or five women around me, and it was as if I'd stolen money from their pocket. And I thought, I'm not, I don't need that. I'm not trying anymore. And I didn't bother. And I really stayed away from that entire car, little, I won't say cartel, but a little group. There was a little group. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that the intention of this podcast and what I'm trying to open up is there is this culture that exists within the UK whereby interior designers perceive other interior designers as a bit of a threat. And as you know, design wasn't my first career. And I found that the most abstract thing that when situations arose where you wondered how somebody else would handle it, there was nowhere. There was no way you would ask those candid questions that you can't find in resource books. You know, the, the real hard issues that come up that are often also quite sensitive. There has been a vortex around it. And yes. I must credit where I am with this podcast to some of my professional colleagues in the United States where I have been and I've shared in some of their business ethos and they have an amazing different perspective they have a community over competition belief and they share and they collaborate and they raise each other up in a way that I don't think exists here. You're absolutely right uh, but I do think that culture is changing because when I was younger I used to always admire the American way of life it was like hey I've just got a, a rise and I bought a brand new car and everyone would say, well done. Here, there would be envy, jealousy, and people would try to scratch your new car. And I, I didn't really understand why that should be. Yeah. And so it, how did you find those moments of isolation when you were running your own practice and those difficulties? How did you work your way through them? I very much was a one-man band. I wasn't accepted in the clique of interior design because they called me a builder. They oh. said, <laughs> um, and I said, call me what you like. <laughs> um, I'm making money and I'm doing well. And I grew and slowly I ended up with 22 staff. Amazing. And then I, I had a good fit out. I had, you know, my turnover was huge. I was, I was a very big practice at, for a very long time. And the way I, I suppose, in terms of going to trade shows, there was only a couple in those days. And I do think that I just gave up. I stopped going to those and I sent my designers to it. And of course, it's, I think I've hardened up now. It's taken me all these years but it, it is offensive when you are isolated because you are perceived in the eyes of, of, of your peers as being more successful. And therefore, the envy and the jealousy means that you should be isolated. 
I work truly as a one-man band, very well with my team, worked internationally, worked with, as I say, I had great clients. I had fabulous um, celebrity clients as well. And majority of my work was very high profile, very secretive. And that's how I worked. Yeah. And that is testament to your tenacity, really, that you've managed to grow such a successful company against such really adverse, you know, culture of business, mm -hmm. you know. So how long did you run your practice for or are you still running your practice? Well, I now only do design rather than design. I used to do a, a turnkey. Okay. Where I, and what happened, I decided that what will I do to exit? I had a big company and I went to the stock market to look and see how I would um, transfer it. Yeah, and, and I was looking at Versace and Chanel and all of those. Their, their owners are dead long, long ago, but the brand and the, and the name, if you like, continues. So I thought, well, I need to um, diversify my practice and take care of my team so that they continue when I don't. And I didn't want to write a coffee table book like many of my peers had done. And I didn't want to go into entertainment shows. And so I decided to set up a place whereby my team had somewhere else to go for advice um, when I was no longer around. And that's how SBID came about. And I had been approached by another body. I helped out there. They didn't want my help. They said, you've got two big ideas, you know, and I'd done various things to help grow that association into a bigger body. They didn't like that. So they invited me to go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, that was quite complicated. Um, I decided, well, if just because you don't like my ideas doesn't mean they're no good. It means that if they don't work, I won't be successful. And as I planned the year to be involved in setting up the standards, I thought, well, I'll do it by myself. So I set up SBID and that grew. SBID, for any listeners that are not in the UK or even a, an emerging designer, can you tell me what that stands for and what that is? Yes, it stands for the Society of British Interior Design. But very soon after we launched, we realised that interior design for the UK alone wouldn't have been A, big enough, and B, it wasn't fit for the global market. And so we added another I as such and added international. So it's Society of British and International Interior Design now. That's what it stands for. And we set it so that it was creating the standards that were being taught in universities because no other body was addressing the education. So I said, well, just because a graduate retire or leaves a university or a school with a qualification, it didn't mean that 
the skills they'd learned were the skills that the designers wanted to employ. And that was the biggest gap. So we worked with the Department of Univer Ministry of University and we worked with uh, various different universities and we set up different modules that were converted to the BA degree and we said these are the five standards for membership of the SBID and they were adopted across the module of a BA degree generally which was a big improvement and then we worked on the other side which was to provide the designers with profile and by providing them with a profile we set up the SBID awards and they're now regarded as the best in the world and we have over 90 countries that enter and it's huge oh. yes so the SBID can a designer from any country in the world become a member they don't have to be British yes that's correct they, we've separated it into British designers and international designers, but we also encourage designers from all levels of capability. And in that regard, we help them along their journey for improvement and we provide various different fields. And now it's a big um, sort of body. We have, we're a team of 14 and we, uh, yeah, we have 10 regions across the UK and we are the largest body in Europe. So you touched on earlier how you think it's important to raise up the opportunities of people that perhaps come from less privileged backgrounds to enter design. Is there anything that you've done towards helping give those people a space to enter the industry? Yes, I think the biggest thing is to help them get employment. And we set up an internship and a mentoring program initially. And we gave free membership to the schools and universities that adopted our modules. And I go around and speak at all those universities and we encourage them to work in the way that we say will help them get employment. And we encourage our designers to recruit from those universities. So as it stands at the moment then, is your design practice just very small? You're just doing yes. the design work? I gifted the company to my team so that they owned the company. And then I started SBID. And then I gifted them or, or handed them the, the work and the jobs as they came in so that they were able to carry on independently. That's and wonderful. then that, and the reason for that is because at that time, and I'm going only, go, only going back to 2008, nine, at that time, there wasn't a single interior design practice on the stock exchange which was the biggest shock because I thought I'd be able to sell my company and I realized that, no, I couldn't. And that's not sustainable for employees because you know that if your boss is getting older or if they went bust or, or decided to close their company, 
your employment and live, your livelihood, your career is on very shaky ground. And that's not, that's not right. I didn't think that was right. So I really wanted to speak with the contractors and the investors to find out why they hadn't all joined together and why they hadn't uh, somewhere in there been PLCs or companies that of, of substantial value that were that investors saw value in investing in. And when I looked at the amount of building contractors that were floated and the billions of pounds of their values of business, I you can see why they've grown because they don't only do contracting, they supply the materials, they do that. And interior designers in many ways didn't do that. They did the interior design only. Whereas I did the design, the supply and the fit out. And therefore I was similar, but not not PLC to those contractors. And I thought, well, I think it's actually, they A, didn't trust interior designers as being professional. Mm -hmm. And B, the reputation the industry had was one of expense rather than of saving. And that was my biggest message that, yes, you you could go and design your house yourself or your hotel yourself, but it won't be anywhere near as good or compliant as having a professional do it. And that's the same as drafting your own contract or your own will rather than going to a solicitor or looking up on Google, I've got a pain, what's the problem? Oh, I must have this disease or that problem. But you need to still go to a professional. And I remember at the time when I was working with this other body, they said, you can't learn interior design, Vanessa. It's a flair. And I said, well, playing the piano is a flair, but people still have piano lessons and they learn how to do the music and they they absolutely wouldn't have it. They do now. And I do think that's really interesting what you say in relation to how the industry here in the UK at least doesn't quite have that same uh, value aligned to it because I, I know from speaking to other designers that one of the biggest challenges many designers face here is also articulating our value to a client when we are a little bit further down that food chain. The architect is required, the main contractor is required because you can't get to the point of a built space without them. But the value that we bring is something that I know many interior designers struggle with. And I think the biggest problem is we're brought in to fix things rather than being sat around the table at the very beginning. But I hear you and I do feel that in the last decade that is changing. And certainly in the commercial sector, no investor would now start a project without interior design being a line on their budget. And I think the residents or the residential side of the industry, certainly at the top end, and at the entry level of councils and, uh, you know, local um, bodies, they see the value. And I think that's mainly because of compliance, you know, for things like the non-slip, water and electrical, 
locations and specifying and installing the right item in the right location for the right. And so that's really led quite a lot to the necessity of having a professional on board, as I say, at entry level for um, local councils. And it's slowly getting a reputation of being, it's about safety, it's about the, the best use of space and moving around inside a building or a, inside a, a unit of some kind, uh, moving in, around inside an interior safely. I think that's now regarded as the key rather than making things pretty. And therein, you, it's no longer regarded as something that only wealthy people can have. I, I agree with what you say there about very much being something that has, for a long time, certainly for as long as I've um, run my practice, is that there is this belief that it's inaccessible and it's only something mm. that the very wealthy sectors of society can access. And there is no denying that interior design is by its very nature a luxury service. However, there is tiers of any service and there are opportunities for interior design to be more accessible and not to be only available if you've got lots and lots of cash to spend on your projects. So the SBID then, where do you see that that going over the next few years? Because I know we've spoke before in our professional careers together about this. So, I, I mean, I have to say that we now have five really strong team leaders and on a day-to-day basis, they run SBID and they come to me less and less, <laughs> which I, is great. Um, and and I'm very good at letting go and delegating. And if you surround yourself with great people, then you don't need to constantly, you know, plug holes. So I think it will grow in its own directions with, as society changes and the industry develops. And I don't think how it started will be how it will emerge in the, over the next decade. I think it will have new challenges and it will grow in different directions. Um, one of the things that, well, I've got two things I want to leave behind for it. And um, until I've dealt with those two things, I'm not stepping away. Are you going to share what they are? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, the two things that I'm concerned about is getting paid for designers. And I've been working on that from day one. And we're nearly there with a solution for that. Well, I am uh, interested in that one. Yes, yes. And the second part is really making the profession a regulated profession in the same way that solicitors regulated or a surveyor or anyone else. And the reason I say that is because of the sums of money involved. And we work with the business, but we also work in the residential sector. So we're working with the consumer and the biggest area of their average consumer's financial assets is their home. And very often they mortgage or remortgage their home to carry out the extension or the refurbishment. And it's very often quite a large sum of money. It's 
often more than their annual salary, and therefore they should be protected. Yes. And we should be laying out standards of practice and standards of capability that are government endorsed. And so in 2016, for the very first time in our sector of interior design, I applied for a royal charter for interior design. And we've got all of the consents from the ministries of government that we need. We've got all of the consents from all the departments of government that we need. And we just need the last two steps. So hopefully we will know. Having consulted on the Grenfell um, fire for products, we were then, I don't know what you'd call us, but we've now got, we're now um, registered for product safety through the government department of product safety. So we're the point of contact for that. So we're on the journey and hopefully in my time, we will get to become a chartered society for interior design. And if we're able to do that, it will then be the step further to become a a profession that is regulated, which means that people won't be able to just call themselves a designer without any training. And is there another example that we can relate to? I'm thinking of a few, but is there an example that we can relate to of a similar chartered body that we would all know and recognise and apply trust to because they have that mark? Yes, I would say that could be solicitors and in fact even architects and the the line uh, that is drawn for regulating a profession is risk to life and so when I initially went to see the Department of Health and Safety back in 2009 and the um, Federation of um, Healthcare and I went to all the different sectors And I asked them why they had their department or their industry regulated. And they each provided me with a reason that was protecting the consumer or the public. And I remember the CEO of the health and safety department explaining to me, well, of course, you know, if an architect um, designs a building and it falls down, it could cause loss of life to public. But if you as an interior designer paint a wall the wrong colour, you just painted another colour. And I said, but we also give advice on, say, kitchens. And if we were locating water next to an electrical socket that breached a um, the building regs of 600 mil, and then the next contractor comes in, one contractor comes in and does the plumbing correctly. The electrician comes in and does his sockets and isolation switches correctly. The worktop contractor comes in and installs that. And it's only when you get to the last bit that suddenly the person doing the backsplash or coming in to sign off the electrical safety installation says, oh, this is in breach of building regs. And then, of course, there's too much work as as, as being um, fulfilled and too much money spent. And 
then it becomes the issue. It does. And I can think of similar examples that have happened um, that I'm aware of um, where designers are also vulnerable, extremely vulnerable, yeah. Yeah. and also require their own framework of protection. Um, yes. yes. And accordingly working within that kind of framework to make sure that the end user is safe primarily. You've had a really, really um, rich career, unlike probably most interior designers because of the experiences that you've had and and also the timing of, of your career journey as well. You've seen radical change. If you were to go back to when you were only 18, 20, what would you tell yourself knowing what you know now? Oh, that's such a good question, Rachel. Well, I definitely advise potential interior designer to take a short course at what I'd call a teaser or a taster to just learn what the career, if you like, entails, because they have no idea. They watch these entertainment programs and they think it's all about the reveal. And we all know it's 80% admin. There's a lot of building site work. <laughs> We're, we are builders. And then the last part, the fun bit, is the final reveal. But that's not it. That's not all the, the job. And they also need to understand quite a lot of finance and numbers. So if they don't understand maths or they're not good at maths, they'll never be able to calculate the right amount of fabric or carpet or budget control. And they need to know all of that. And I, I've always had arguments with tutors on interior design courses saying, well, it's not a business course. And you know, you're, what you're talking about is business. And I've always said, well, it's the same as running a restaurant. You try to run it without the finance and you'll be in trouble. You have to know the money. So I think that the perception of the job and the actual job are two very different things. So I think before they invest 30 or 40,000 pounds on a degree, they should understand what they'd be doing all their life. And if they then love it, great, go on and, and carry on. So I, I think that's the bit that's missing. I don't think we as an industry have been very good at promoting all the different facets of the skills that we need to hold and uh, perform through a project. There is so many skills, project management skills, people mm. skills, and you have to be you have to be confident. You have to be able to go to site and hold your own and explain, you know, how things should be. And and I see designers come through my business and you can see where people have got great creative skills, but they perhaps don't want that confrontation or to be put in that space. And other designers that have got amazing CAD skills, but really don't want to get involved in, in the creative element. And there is so many facets to being an interior mm -hmm. designer that I think you're right. It's it's hard before they entered that course to understand it. So I think the work that you're doing with the SBID is is changing the industry, um, you know, in in a way that we, we can only appreciate and, and wait for, really, because the possibility of a charter and everything else. Is there anything else that you would like to see change about the industry aside of that? I mean, I, w I really would like to see the law changed so that designers are more protected. And in that way, I think consumers would be more protected too. And by that, I mean it, contract law, 
um, because at the moment, without, I mean, it's it's public knowledge and it's it's law that you can install a fixture in someone's home, and currently, if they haven't paid you beforehand, that fixture transfers to the ownership of the owner of the home because it's their fixture in their home. So if you don't get your paperwork right, you can be paying for someone's fixtures. And if someone doesn't behave correctly, they can just choose not to pay you. And I don't think there's any other profession where you could agree to pay somebody a sum of money, then have the work done, not pay for it, and the designer have to sue you to try and get paid. That's very interesting and very, very true. I know we always make sure we're paid first. However, I know that it's not. It's not common. And sometimes designers, well, they learn, we all learn by mistakes and you don't repeat them. But I've seen so many designers um, get that part wrong and they go bust because, oh, they've lost their homes. I mean, I've saved one designer his home when the charge was put on his home because he got that part wrong. And I don't think that in 2023, that should not be correct. No, no, it shouldn't. It's an injustice. It is. And so where's next? What's next for Vanessa? Well, I have various different interests. And whilst I love interior design, I don't want the fight, you know, as I, uh, I don't want to be, you know, dealing with um, conflict at all. So I'm very much a solution finder and many of the things I get involved in are an extension of how I can resolve a problem. So I have, um, you know, hopefully, as I say, I've got these other three extensions of SBID that I think will be fantastic for it and for the industry at large. And I work closely with government in different areas uh, to promote interior design, both in the UK and around the world. And I think that you just, let's watch this space. Yes, it sounds like there should be an episode two. (laughs) That's, do you know what we'll do, Rachel? When these things evolve, I'll come back and tell you all about it. Great. I will hold you to that. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much. I could talk to you for hours because I know that there is much more to you than you have spoken about in the last, you know, few minutes. Um, So I could keep going, but thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. And so do our listeners because the experience that you have and that you can share and you can so candidly talk about is refreshing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I don't know about you, but I am profoundly struck by Vanessa's ability to look at how something is being done and to just see that as a starting point. How many young people beginning their careers would carve out such a lucrative business partnership, striking a deal that gave her the springboard to go on to establishing a highly successful career? Vanessa is a trailblazer. I admire both her bravery and her ability to say, this is me, take it or leave it. Yet at the same time, recognise that not everyone has equal access to a career in interior design. 
Vanessa has unfinished business with her work through the SBID with the aim of a royal charter and that seeks to benefit all of us. I'm so grateful that she was generous enough to share that candid conversation with me today. Thank you for joining me. I have loved having you here with me on the If These Walls Could Talk podcast. If you are a designer and would like to hear more conversations from other design professionals, from the kind of people who at one time or another have been right where you are, then I do hope you will follow the show and listen again in two weeks' time. I'll be right here, wherever you would usually find your podcasts. Just search for If These Walls Could Talk by The Business of Interiors. If you would like to be a guest on the podcast, talk about sponsoring the show or work with me, please reach me at hello at thebusinessofinteriors.co.uk. Finally, it means a lot to the success of this show if you could follow, leave a review and share this program amongst your design community. This show is sponsored by Rachel Usher Interior Design. Thank you so much for joining me.